Welcome to Mr. Banner's History Podcasts. This is the first episode. If you did not listen to the intro, please do so. This podcast is dedicated to my middle school students and my college students. On this first full episode, I'd like to talk about maps of old times and the sea monsters you see drawn on them. I'll also include in that a little bit of a discussion on Christopher Columbus because he, in fact, saw sea monsters. So have you ever seen an old map? And I don't mean the one that you would see on the wall of your middle or your high school. I mean an old map from the 1500s or 1600s. If you haven't seen one, look it up. Look one up. Let me tell you what they look like. First, they're mostly inaccurate. They're beautifully designed and beautifully drawn. They have other distinguishing characteristics as well. Mermaids, sea monsters, ships being swallowed up by other sea creatures, and so on. The first century Roman naturalist, Pliny the Elder, had a theory. His theory was that every creature that lived on land had an equivalent creature in the ocean. To people back then, that made sense. So basically, in the ocean lived a hybrid land animal that was also part sea creature. That's what they believed. And that was promoted by people like Pliny the Elder. When we say first century, he's living right after the time of Jesus, just to give you kind of like a time frame. Another famous person we want to talk about is Olus Magnus. He was a Swedish author and cartographer. A cartographer is someone who makes maps. If you look at his maps today, you might think they look like cartoons. But Magnus was taken seriously not only because he was educated, but because he was an archbishop in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, especially back then in the 1500s, had a lot of influence and a lot of power. We'll talk about that in future recordings or future podcasts, how when explorers came to places like the New World, like America, for instance, or North and South America, they brought priests with them. That would legitimize what they were doing, make it right in the sight of God, for instance. When Magnus drew his maps, his ideas on sea monsters were not that far off from their reality from that time. They did not know as much as we know about the ocean and the seas. So where do these map makers get their ideas for these sea monsters? Was it their imagination? What do you think? Pause and think about that for a moment. It was sailors. Sailors were not the most educated people. Since their experiences were only first-hand accounts or eyewitness accounts, they, according to Smithsonian Magazine, quote, became the basis of natural history texts and drawings on maps. These maps then helped perpetuate the life of the creatures as they inspired travelers on the dangerous sea to confirm their existence. So when I say that sailors were not educated, it's not that they didn't know what they were doing. They were very good at sailing, but they weren't book smart. They weren't well-educated in school, so they didn't necessarily know the science of the day. So if they saw something and they tried to make sense of it and then came back on shore a year later and explained what they saw, people would have taken that, their word for that, even if they may have embellished or maybe they missaw something or maybe even they dreamt it. So the sailors were the basis for 
a lot of the drawings we see on these maps of sea monsters because they were the only ones who had actually been out there in the sea. If you want to hear some interesting stories about sea monsters, look into a podcast called Lore, L-O-R-E, by a man named Aaron Mankey. Episode 59 is called A Deep Fear. It's all about sea monsters. My middle school students, as always, if you download anything, you really need to ask your parents' permission first. Um, So if people back then believed in sea creatures, was that belief only amongst the uneducated? Well, most likely not, because people like Olus Magnus and Pliny the Elder, they wrote about these things, and they were educated people. First, let me clarify that these maps were not maps that you might keep somewhere to look at where you're going. It wasn't like a sailor kept this in his back pocket and pulled it out in order to find out where he was or to navigate his course on the sea. These masterful pieces of artwork were hung on the walls of manor houses of the wealthy. So they were display pieces. But that does not mean the belief in sea monsters was only among the uneducated, nor did it mean that it only existed as conversation pieces on the walls of the nobility and the gentry. We all know who Christopher Columbus was. Just take a moment and reflect or think about what you know about Columbus. Christopher Columbus saw sea monsters. Yes, he saw sea monsters. Take a guess, take a moment, pause, take a guess at what sea monsters he saw. You might not really think of these as monsters, sea creatures. On January 9th, 1493, Columbus was sailing near the Dominican Republic when he saw three mermaids. He described them as, quote, not half as beautiful as they are painted. So what was it that Columbus saw? He said he saw mermaids. Take a guess. What were those mermaids? Like, what were they really? Any guess? They were manatees. And if you look at manatees, they actually have the shape of almost like a mermaid. And the mammary glands in the chest, that would make it look like it was the chest of a mermaid. Columbus, like others, was, as artuk.org states, particularly wary of encountering sea monsters. So even somebody like Columbus, let's get beyond what he did in the New World. We'll talk about that in a separate episode. But him as a sailor. He, even he, who's known for you know venturing out into the unknown Atlantic Ocean, even he was afraid of these sea monsters. He believed they existed. What do we really know about what these sailors of old times saw? We really don't know. I'm not saying I believe in sea monsters, but I will say this. According to National Geographic, the ocean covers 70% of Earth, and only 80% of it remains unexplored. Like, of the Earth, 70% of Earth is ocean. 80% of that remains unexplored. It's really more than 80%. So I'm not saying sea monsters exist, but what I am saying is so much of the earth is ocean and so much of it, more than 80%, remains unexplored. So Columbus, somebody like him, can you trust what he saw anyway? I mean, even if we didn't know that they were actually manatees, can you trust somebody who you don't even know what they look like? Like, 
Christopher Columbus, we have no idea what he looked like. Christopher Columbus never sat for a portrait. He never had his picture painted or drawn. So more about that in our next episode. So think about the sea monsters, the maps, and how this all ties in with people exploring the oceans and coming to what we call in America the New World. I hope to make my next episode soon, and I want to keep these at around 10 minutes each. Feel free to email me. If you're one of my students, talk to me in person. Mr. Banner's History Podcast at gmail.com. This podcast episode goes out by request. One of my students, Colton, wanted to hear about the lost colony of Roanoke. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Just a reminder, I will be keeping these episodes brief because I don't want them to get too detailed. If there's anything I want to talk more about, I'll just make another episode. And these are not in any any order. They're random. Either whatever you students want to hear or whatever I think is something I'd like to talk about. So before we begin, forgive me if the sound quality is not the greatest. I don't have my microphone with me. I'm recording this from my classroom on my iPad. So the Lost Colony of Roanoke. First question is, why is it lost? Why do we use the word lost in the Lost Colony of Roanoke? I'm going to read to you just an intro from Creating America, one of the textbooks that I've been using for about 19 years. England defeated the Spanish Armada in 1588. Then it decided to use its resources to establish colonies in the Americas. Colonies would provide the country with raw materials. They would also increase the country's trade. Many English colonists wanted to come to the Americas to gain greater economic opportunity. Some wanted to come to the Americas to escape religious persecution. So in the beginning there it says England defeated the Spanish Armada in 1588. Keep that in the forefront of your brain for a few minutes. So the lost colony of Roanoke. It's a mystery that's intrigued people, um, interested people for centuries. What happened to the lost colonists of North Carolina's Roanoke Island? Well, you may remember from elementary school, middle school, high school, or even college, that settlers arrived at Roanoke, and you might not remember the year, it was 1587, their ships go back to England, get some supplies to restock them and so on, and they don't return. They don't return. When the ships finally got back, the sailors found the words Croatoan carved on a, like a gatepost to a fort and the letters C-R-O etched into a tree. That's it. No graves. There, there was no sign of violence. It's not like Columbus. When Columbus returned after his first voyage to, to the fort that he built in La Navidad and found his men were like slaughtered by the native Indians, it wasn't like that. It's like, it was like a ghost town. That's how I'm imagining it in my head. Roanoke was just gone. People were gone. Remember I talked about the Spanish Armada a few moments ago. So, the English colonists arrive in Roanoke Island, North Carolina in 1587. Their ship goes back, plans to return, but in 1588 is when the Spanish invaded, tried to invade, I should say, invade, tried to invade England. And the Armada was sunk as it um, crossed the English Channel. 
So if you think about that, one of the reasons why the supply ships and the return voyage was delayed back to Roanoke was because the Spanish tried to invade England in 1588. It was uh, King Philip. He was one of the reasons he was angry was because Queen Elizabeth wouldn't marry him, even though he was already married to her sister Mary, who had died, Mary, um, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary Tudor. He wanted to um, return England to the Roman Catholic Church, and he was not too happy that uh, English ships were attacking Spanish galleons returning from the New World with gold. So his failed attempt to invade England in 1588 is what held up supply reinforcements getting back to Roanoke after the colonists had been dropped off there, I say dropped off in quotes, in 1587, okay? England's first colony, Virginia, was started by Sir Walter Raleigh in 1585. The colonists who settled that colony counted on Native Americans for food and so on. We know those stories. But the lost colony of Roanoke, those people, that was the third group of English settlers to be in that area. The first group of English settlers arrived in 1584. They came to explore and map the land. The second group was on more of a military kind of science type mission. However, it was the second group that ticked off some of the Native American Indian groups, and I, you don't even have to use your imagination to, to gather why. So needless to say, there were two short visits by colonists from England to the Roanoke area, 1584, 1585, and then 1587, the, the uh, third group arrives, which would become the lost colony. Now, we know that the third group, the people who were lost, we know that they were here not to just map it out, not, to, not for military ex exploration or anything. They were here to settle. How do we know that they were here to settle? I'm going to pause and see if you can think about that. The third group who arrived in 1587, the one who became the Lost Colony, there were families with children. There were uh, 17 or 18 women, 10 or 11 children, and 90 to 100 men. So if you're bringing your women and children, you're here to stay. So it's not like they were coming here to plunder or look for gold or anything like that. This is not the Jamestown that would come uh, years later. These people were here, they wanted to start a new life. They're here to settle that third group, here to settle. First group, map it out. Second group at Roanoke, military science type of exploration. Third group, third wave, if you want to say whatever, they are here to stay. That's the group that disappeared. So um, what happened was a map was discovered. Um, I read it on National Geographic on their online magazine. It's a map of an area called La Virginia Pars. It was drawn by uh, John White, who was the governor of the colony. He had worked for Sir Walter Raleigh and was also the grandfather of Virginia Dare, who was the first English child born in the New World. On this map that was discovered, there were two like blotches. Like maybe I'm thinking they looked like ink stains. And scientists at the British Museum looked into these patches and discovered like little blue and red symbols. 
maybe that was indicated a fort or some kind of an emergency location. We're not quite sure. Um, quote, our best idea is that parts of Raleigh's exploration in North America were a state secret, and maybe the map cover-up was an effort to keep information from the public and from foreign agents, said Eric Klinghoffer of Mercer University in Macon, Georgia, a historian and the principal investigator on the project. Project meaning looking into the lost colony of Roanoke. So perhaps it was that um, the symbols on this map may have, sh may have shown the location of a secret place. Maybe that's where the colonists knew where to go. Like if there's a problem, you go here. We don't know. There is also a theory that, there has been a theory in the past, that the colonists went and lived with the Native American Indian group or Native American Indian tribe, which is, a, which is very plausible. However, we don't think, when I say we, I mean scientists and historians, we don't think a Native Indian group in that general area would have been able to accommodate such a large group because the, the groups of Natives in that general area, basic area, were small themselves. Would they have had enough resources to sustain? Here's another hundred and something people coming to live with us. So the, the prevailing theory now is that the colonists abandoned Roanoke, traveled possibly even 50 miles south to Hatteras Island, which was then known as Croatoan Island. That's why they put that, that name there. The only question I have is, would they have known the name of that place to carve it before they went there? I don't think they would have been accustomed or, or familiar with something 50 miles south. I don't know. Maybe the group traveled, went to Hatteras Island, then called Croatoan Island, and then somebody went back. Maybe a group of men went back and carved that into the, the, the post and the tree just to, to let people later on, let them know where they had gone. But I don't think they would have planned that ahead of time to put it on, carve it in the tree and the, the gate post before they left. I don't think they would have traveled 50 miles that far away before going there. Like in other words, to me, I'm thinking if they really went south to Hatteras, which was then known as Croatoan Island, they would have gone there first and be like, okay, this is where we'll stay. They didn't plan on going. So how the word, words got on the, the tree, the letters on the tree, the words on the doorpost, my theory is maybe, again, like I said, somebody went back and carved that so that later rescuers or you know, if a party came back of sailors, they would know where they went. This is, I'm reading this from National Geographic's magazine uh, website. Furthermore, archeologists have identified the nearby site of a small Native American town named Metaquem, which may have adopted some of the colonists. So that's, that's possible as well. So it's not that they all, that they mixed up or broke up into little groups in the area or that they all went to live in with one native group in the area. The idea is that they traveled pretty far, 50 miles for 1587, 88, that's pretty far. And they would have gone that way. And then maybe from there, from Croatoan Island, now Hatteras, then they may be branched off and settled other places. Malcolm LeCompte, a research associate at Elizabeth City State University in North Carolina, was responsible for the addition of GPR in the archaeological search for what happened to the lost colonies, colonists of Roanoke. 
quote, what we do is we get the oldest maps we can find so we can get a historic sense of what was there and what's there now and orient them, the Comte said. The point is to compare, quote, what may have been there in the past to what is there now. So the idea is to use old maps. If you remember my last episode was on maps of the sea and the sea monsters. Maps have been around forever, right? So that to use the oldest maps they can get from that area, maybe that the people of the lost colony maybe would have known or what they would have recognized compared to maps of today to get a better idea of how far these people might have traveled. So the lost colony of Roanoke, I suppose it remains lost. So Colton, I'm glad you asked that question. This one, you had wanted to hear this. So what do you think? Maybe look up Lost Colony on your own, get some theories. Of course, there, uh, maybe it was aliens. You know, there are that group of people who think that aliens built the pyramids, which is complete and utter nonsense. But the factual history is the Lost Colony of Roanoke is lost because their reinforcements, supply ships could not get back to them because the Spanish attempted to invade England in 1588. And I suppose the people were running out of supplies and needed to go somewhere. So the latest theory is they traveled 50 miles south to what is now Hatteras, which was called Croatoan Island in their time. Then maybe my theory is somebody, a group of men traveled back to carve the, uh, the clues onto the gatepost and the tree so that others would know where they had gone. So as always, if you have any questions, please, please, please email me, or if you're one of my students, see me in class, Mr. Banner's History Podcast at gmail.com. And my next episode, it looks like, is going to be on, somebody wants the Salem Witch Trials. I will do that, but I might have something in between only because my college students, if you're listening to this, um, we will talk about Roanoke, which we talked about in this episode, and we will talk about some stuff in between, so I might want to fill that gap with some things before I get to Salem with Trials. One of my college students was talking about, Anthony was talking about um, how the, there was ergot poisoning, they believe, on the rye seeds in the bread in Salem, which caused those girls to act out and hallucinate and see the things that they saw. My only question with that is, why didn't it affect other people in Salem? Why just those girls, if it was ergot poisoning, that fungus on the bread to make them hallucinate? So we'll get to that at some point, Salem Witch Trials. Next one, somebody try to give me something between Roanoke and Salem Witch Trials. I'll fill in that gap. Again, please let me know if you have any questions.